You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And that's not on there, is it? I've, I've not found it anywhere. We saw that. Kenny was posh. He had a video camera like, <laughs> and on the shoulder. It was big, wow. wasn't it? It was a whopper. Yes. They were big then, though. They were, no, but we were <laughs> just were. I was so impressed you had one. I had one. And thank goodness. You, but how did you know these existed? We were on eBay. I'm not eBay, quite sure. I think it was on eBay. Yeah. Stuck in the day when you could so get anything on eBay. So you're proper full-on stalker. I know. We were, <laughs> it's a proper bit, sweaty weirdos. <laughs> Got in how it. much did you pay? I can't remember, but probably too much. And it was on an old-school videotape <laughs> as well. VHS. It's all on YouTube now, though. It is on YouTube, We could have said fortune. I'll sell you my carriage shoes. I've got them in the locker. Oh! We're back. Hello. I'm afraid we just couldn't stay away. So we are back for one last little jaunt into the life of one Carrietta White with this special bonus episode of Out for Blood, your favourite reassessment of Broadway's ultimate flop, Carry the Musical. Out for Blood. And I'm So we wanted to come back and record this new episode, firstly to say an enormous thank you to everyone who has downloaded and listened to the show since we launched in January. It's been absolutely overwhelming, hasn't it? It definitely has. I think we expected maybe like a few hardcore carry nerds to listen. (laughs) Basically like me and you a few hundred times each. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So imagine our surprised little faces when we saw thousands of people each week listening to the show and sending us such lovely feedback. Someone described us as basically cereal for Carrie. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> I mean, you can't argue back with that, can no. you? So if you downloaded, subscribed, left a review, or just said hello on social media, it really has meant the world to us. We hope you enjoyed the ride. Our second reason for coming back to your feed is that, well, our original episodes were recorded quite a long time ago. <laughs> and since we started releasing them each week, we heard from several more people we would have loved to have included in the show. Yeah, we did manage to make a few quick last-minute edits as we went along to to drop in some memories. Sorry, Tom. <clears throat> you are forgiven. <laughs> but there are a few other cool stories that we'd like to share with you today as a sort of wrap-up of the series. And we may also share a few of our favourite unheard interview clips Ooh. that we just couldn't squeeze in somewhere in the last 11 weeks. 11 episodes about Carrie, so stupid. <laughs> I think we've lasted longer than the show itself. I think we did. Now, I've been stuck in my house a lot talking about Carrie for most of the year. Has anything else been going on in the real world? New president. Oh, yeah. So, you know times are a-changing when the inauguration video includes high-kicking Broadway stars. Yes. 
Remember that medley of Seasons of Love and Let the Sun Shine In? Oh, yes. It featured not one, but two, count them, carry the musical original cast members. Betty Buckley and Charlotte D'Amboise. I really think there should have been a medley of Don't Waste the Moon, though, don't you? I think you? it's worth bearing in mind for the future. Kamala? Uh, <laughs> so what else has been happening in the Carryverse? Well, firstly, before we go any further, I think probably one of the most surprising things to come out of all of this is that Tom, our long-suffering editor in the corner over there, is now a fan of Carry the Musical. Yeah, it's true. He plays it in the kitchen a lot. Oh, okay, so we should just explain that Holly and Tom are married. She hasn't kidnapped him. Yeah, that's the official line. In fact, Tom, <laughs> come on the mic. Come round come here on, and tell here. us why you come love on. Carrie so much, you big weirdo. Come on, up you come. Come on, come you grab in. my mic. Go on. Come on, on the mic, please. Get on. Thank you. So why do you like Carrie? You... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, well, it's a bit like Stockholm Syndrome, for starters. <laughs> Rude. Um, it's been impossible not to be exposed to it in quite a significant <laughs> way. There was a point at which you definitely said, I think you know the Carrie songs better than I do now because <laughs> I'd had to listen to them so many times. Yeah. That's probably got something to do with why I've ended up listening to it in my free time. Yeah, I like the message that you sent me the other day that was like, oh no, my YouTube is full of Carrie the Musical. <laughs> <laughs> Just, the algorithm has found me. Just before this record, yeah, I know my yeah my YouTube suggestions are now all carry related. <laughs> and uh, when I was just closing down some uh, browser tabs uh, to get ready for this session, <laughs> I discovered uh, Emily Lopez's audition video. <laughs> <laughs> This and like... several bootleg audience film versions of the LA uh, bit where the destruction yeah. <laughs> where Chris gets thrown away. You do like the new version, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do. You're a fan of the of the revisal. Yeah, I really like it. I, I think I prefer. So my my dream carry, oh. which I've obviously been thinking about quite a lot, um, is essentially like the the revival songs, um, but with the orchestration. Of the, yes. of the original, because one of the things listening to the soundboard recording that I've really enjoyed is it just sounds so great. Yeah, the mm. the, the full orchestra, which they'll never get back, because no. a, I mean, yeah. you know, the, the expense of it anyway, and like how many shows really have like a full orchestra now anyway, but the 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 sound that comes with it, sort of the driving beat and the, the yeah. amazing brass and stuff, like yeah. just sounds so expansive and and great. Um, but yeah, I think I sort of come up with like my sort of vague enjoyment of it is that. I think Michael Gore has the most incredible ear for a melody. It's just so... And like all the songs, like even the ones that you guys have been very disparaging about, which I've been quite upset. Uh, I don't think we have. (laughs) But like Don't Waste the Moon and stuff like that. And also... We love Don't Waste the Moon. It's just a banger. It is a bang. It's a bop, as the kids would say on Twitter. It slaps. It slaps. It does slap. And like even stuff like (laughs) Out for Blood or Cracker Jack. Yes. Um... I know just like some some of those songs like even when the verse isn't the the most hummable thing and it's that one and what's the other one that has that oh in so like in's verse is like sort of does the job like gets the information across <laughs> but the choruses are absolutely absolute hammers um, thank you Tom no, thank, thank you. you back in your box right. thank you're you next, Paddy. can you <laughs> hand sand that surface thank you right okay so we've converted at least one person to the cult Holly you had an inspirational idea for the title of a possible Margaret White origin musical yes the world according to Christ <laughs> <laughs> God's sake. 
Can someone get on that, please? Maybe I'll do it as a one-woman show at next year's Edinburgh. <laughs> you heard it here first, if it folks. Goes ahead. Okay, now that we've got that level of nonsense ticked off the list. <laughs> yes. In our first episode, we covered the early workshop production of Carrie, starring, among others, the legendary Annie Golden. This is not my first rodeo. No. <laughs> Fair to say we were a bit excited to talk to Annie. Holly, I recently listened back to the noise you made when Annie revealed she used to hang out with Jackie DeShannon and Cher. So I was in that dressing room, so I got to meet Jack- Jackie DeShannon and, and wow. Cher and... Um, <laughs> It sounds like you've been physically injured with envy there. And um, it means I'm now one degree of separation from Cher. Anyway, Annie came back to us with some extra deets, not about Carrie, but about that epic B movie she was filming at the same time. Ah, Maybe you do look good. I know some of you got a bit obsessed with Streetwalking too. It is available, uh, the trailer is available on YouTube at least. I'm not sure if the original is, but she remembered that the guy playing the dodgy pimp. Well, he has another Stephen King connection. That's Dale Midkiff, who played the lead in Pet Cemetery. Amazing! Yeah. All roads lead to Stephen King. Now that novel would make a good musical. They could see if they could borrow the costumes from cats, save a bit of cash. (laughs) Annie also managed to connect us to the lovely Todd Graff, who played Tommy Ross alongside her in the original Carrie workshop. Now, we were too late to get his memories into the first episode. We've squeezed in a few comments from him since then, and we've got more of his interview to play for you now. Well, it was a really long time ago, and (laughs) my memory's not great anyway, but uh, I I, I couldn't even tell you... uh, I think his name is Tommy. Was that the character I played? Yeah. Okay. First up, we asked Todd what it was like to play Tommy. So in the movie, obviously, it's the the William Cat, all-American, you know, blonde hair, blue-eyed, muscly guy, which I certainly, even then, by, uh, clearly now I'm not, but even then I was far from, you know, I was uh, like the skinny, character-y, uh, you know, Jewy kind of uh, urban guy. But for whatever reason, I think because I had had somewhat of a success with a Broadway show that I was in, uh, and Michael and Larry saw that show and then just approached me to see if I wanted to do this thing. And I had gone off to do a movie. I left, that show was called Baby, and I had left Baby early to do uh, a movie, actually an English movie, although we shot in English in England called Not Quite Paradise, I mean, sorry, in Israel called Not Quite Paradise that uh, Louis Gilbert directed. But anyway, so I was out of the country. And then when I came back, uh, which I came back for the Tony Awards, because I was nominated for a Tony. So I came back to do the Tonys and those shows uh, organized to be in the workshop for Carrie. And so uh, just in between shooting the movie and leaving the show and coming back to the show, etc., we just kind of shoehorned in the carry workshop. He recently had a realization. I knew that I had recorded, as any actor would, the music rehearsal because it's when they teach you the songs, you go home and you listen to the tape a million times, and that's how you memorize what you know what you're supposed to sing. And so. For whatever reason, I'd never thrown it out. Naturally, we were very excited by this revelation. 
So I got it digitized and listened to it for the first time in God knows how long and thought, oh, wow, this really is uh, uh, crazy. This is where it all began. This was the very first rehearsal of the very first workshop ever of Carrie, of what became the Carrie music, musical phenomenon. So anyway, uh, when I heard about what you guys were doing, that's why I thought, I'm sure I'm the only idiot that saved for 36 years the rehearsal tape the cassette from the very first you know rehearsal ever of it but that's where it came from oh my god folks this is a bit special a world premiere of what we think is the earliest recording of the carry workshop cast which has never been heard before thanks to todd it was recorded in one of the writer's apartments around a piano and there are just three songs first up Isn't the quality amazing? And of course, that's Laura Dean singing with Todd there at the end. Before that was Liz Calloway's Chris and a singer called John Fiore playing Billy, who we think was standing in for Peter Neptune, who did the final workshop. Don't waste the moon Now that the night is up Oh, don't, baby, don't waste the moon In the stars Don't waste the moon Now that the night is up The second of the three songs on the tape is Do Me a Favor. Yes. <laughs> Voices. The show sounds really fresh and catchy. You can see why people were genuinely excited about the show in its workshop form. 
And lastly, Tommy's song Dreamer in Disguise, which skipped a generation and didn't make it into the show until 2012. I need more of this early carry joyousness. I mean, sadly, that's all we have. (laughs) But thanks so much to young Todd Graff for saving that tape recording. Yes. Of course, Todd played Tommy before a director for the full show was on board. And, like Annie in the rest of the workshop cast, didn't move on to the full production. But his carry connections didn't end there. I was clearly not going to be in the show, and rightly so, considering how insanely miscast I would have been. And also there was no director in the workshop. You know, it was before Terry Hans came on, so he would need to cast his own cast, of course. So, uh, So I was no longer in the show, but I knew a lot about the show, and I was kind of a friend at court. Now a close friend of the writers, he was sent on an observation mission to Stratford during the run there to see how things were going. And as you'll probably remember, it was a pretty chaotic time. I didn't want to go alone, so I brought Lindsay Duncan and Hilton Jacobs with me, and the three of us went up to Stratford to see Carrie, all excited. And then it was, it was surreal. It was so in- incredibly insane. Like everyone, Todd was quite taken aback to see how the show had turned out. It was just, you know, some of the choices were so incomprehensible. Uh, so anyway, that was a long night in the in the pub afterward, hanging out with the with the people that made the show who were there saying, okay, so what do you think? And, you know, what are you going to say? Todd eventually changed direction in his career. I had had a whole career first as an actor, and then I had a whole career as a, as a screenwriter with a lot of movies made and producer. And it was I was unhappy with how, because I generate my own material typically, I was unhappy with handing it over to other directors and then seeing the movies not be what I wanted them to be or thought they would be. And here's another great connection. You'll remember Todd was closely connected to the Stage Door Manor Theatre Camp, attending as a teenager and then teaching there as an adult. His time there inspired him to create the classic cult movie, Camp. I just sort of found these kids and, I mean, now some of them are famous, but at the time, none of them had done anything. It was everybody's first first movie. And, uh, and realised that if I was going to make a movie that anyone would let me direct... It would have to be something that really nobody else could direct. And this was my experience. It was so autobiographical of what of what my childhood was like at this camp. And so, you know, that's it. Wrote it and then we, we made it in I think like eighteen days. And uh yeah, had had I think it has like twelve musical numbers in it or something. And we did it in eighteen it was crazy, obviously. But, you know, we got it done. Michael Gore came in and wrote music for two of the songs. And uh, it was, um, it, 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 you know, for me, obviously, it was life-changing because then after that I was a director. Amazing! We also managed to speak to Paul Schwartz, who was the musical director for Carrie on Broadway, but also involved in the music rehearsal process back in Stratford. Like many things to do with this show, it's a particularly tense tale for everyone involved. 
So I was I was originally hired um, to be the person that took over the show when it opened in New York. I gathered that Michael was Michael Gore, composer, was not feeling musically supported in Stratford. Paul believes that Michael and the original English MD hadn't gelled particularly well. And Michael, I think, felt that as a younger and an American, and for some reason he thought I had a pop music background, which I totally did not, um, felt that, that that I would come in and kind of get all the pop numbers. Because, you know, Michael's Gore back, Michael Gore's background was as a, as a record producer. Um, I mean, apart from, you know, scoring fame and all of that, his main thing was he was a record producer. So he came from, you know, a pop with a capital P background. Um, and he wanted more of that kind of pop feel in the pop half of the score. Um, so they he kind of initiated this thing of flying me over, which I think Terry was totally against. Uh, so my initial arrival there was a little bit fraught. Um, I, I, I think I got there like late January. So they were maybe, I don't remember if it was January or February, but they'd already finished rehearsing in London and they were now ensconced in, in, uh, in Stratford. And I do remember kind of arriving for my first moment of rehearsal, literally fresh off the plane. And I'm, you know, sitting in, there's a big rehearsal room at the top of the theater with lots of beautiful windows. And uh, I'm, you know, I was sitting there talking to some of the dancers and Terry walked in and I kind of walked up to him with my hand out saying, hi, Terry, I'm Paul. And he just didn't react to me at all. Yikes. With Terry's choice of musical director already in place, Paul didn't quite know how best to fit in. So I kind of, you know, took a few vocal rehearsals and, you know, whatever. So that's how I got introduced to the project. Um, and I mean, I, I had... I made very quick, fast friends with the two orchestrators, Anders and Michael Sturovin. Um, and we really got along very, very well. Um, and so that was helpful. And then eventually Terry warmed up. I mean, he was fine. Originally in Stratford, the orchestrations had been done by Michael Sturovin and Anders Elias. Based on their expertise and backgrounds, Michael had taken on the more operatic songs, while Anders, who had previously arranged music for ABBA, Aww. I'm going to make that noise again, <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> took on the more poppy sections. We spoke to Michael, who explained the role of an orchestrator in the development of a new musical. On most musicals, the composer who composes the music for the songs only writes it for piano. Sometimes they're capable of orchestrating, but there usually isn't time because orchestrations can't be, which is basically what the orchestra plays beyond the piano, aren't written till the show is in rehearsal. So they have to be written very quickly in the last four to eight weeks, depending on the rehearsal period. Um, and then they have to be changed. And at the same time, the, the composer is busy altering the score and sitting in rehearsals doing things. So they usually can't be the same person. How did Michael get involved in Carrie? My, so I had a huge breakthrough in that. I had done a couple of little off-Broadway shows, Bill Finn's In Trousers and March of the Falsettos um, and a couple of other small off-Broadway shows. But on March of the Falsettos, I happened, it was directed by this upcoming director, writer, James Lapine, <clears throat> who, um, when he started his collaboration with Stephen Sondheim on Sunday in the Park, said, you got to try this young kid out, young, try him out. 
And so at the age of 26, I orchestra or I turned 27 during the process. Uh, Stephen's show Sunday in the Park with George, which sort of burst me on the scene a little earlier than I was ready for at that age. Um, and I was the hot young flavor in the, you know, mid 80s. Um, and at the time, Michael Gore got in touch with me and said, loved your work on Sunday in the Park. I'd like you to do this show. What were the practicalities of teaming up with another orchestrator? Essentially, I did the, the mother-daughter scenes. He did the more pop-oriented high school songs. And so we sort of split it that way. We even did one number where we split it. You, you know, we sat together and orchestrated together. There were other tensions at play, which added to the complexity of the orchestrator's job. Barbara Cook was doing the show in... Stratford and she was very unhappy with how it was going and how her numbers were shaped. She said, let me bring in my music director, Wally Harper. Wally is one of the great dance arrangers on Broadway. He's no longer with us. Um, and she said, but don't bring him in just to make me happy and not use his work. Bring him in if you're willing to take some of his ideas. And they said, sure. They flew Wally in. He did some arrangements for a couple of her numbers, which they completely rejected. Do you want another iconic Barbara Cook story? I can never get enough. I actually remember uh, after we got the Eve, we, we rehearsed just with the orchestra, the Eve was weak uh, orchestration. And then I invited Barbara to come in. And we, you know, she, she kind of stood on the edge of the pit in the big theater and we played smash bang bang, you know, it's the right of the Valkyries and everything kind of rolled into one. And we finished, and I kind of turned around to look at her and she said, well, I can sing smart, but I'm not sure I can sing that smart. Because it was just so huge. And the famous quote I always remember was Barbara. Barbara Cook standing on the stage and they were about to do in tech her scene that came after the pig scene. And they said, Barbara, you need a you need to move back. We're going to close up the pit where the pig comes out. And she said, well, you better shovel all the shit into it first. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 you know, it, it, was, it had reached that point where we kind of knew. What a legend. <laughs> <laughs> we got so much great feedback about Barbara and her sass. Aspirational. Director Terry Hans decided that changes had to be made for the Broadway transfer. And so the orchestration was completely redone by Harold Wheeler, who had worked on the music for other big commercial shows like Dreamgirls. They decided with all their problems after Stratford that the reason the show wasn't working was orchestrations. Um, so they hired Harold Wheeler, who came in for the New York production and rewrote some of our stuff, but a lot of it remained Um and Harold says they were also asking him what to do about the show in general, which he was kind of like, I can help you with the music, but I don't know, you know, I'm no book writer. You know. Despite admiring all the orchestrators and their work, Paul could never understand the point of the change. I, I am in no way knocking Harold's work because Harold, you know, did reorchestrate it and his work was all really beautiful. But the original orchestrations were absolutely extraordinary. They were really, really good from both fellas. I mean, really good. Um, uh, Anders's stuff was just quirky and weird and exciting. And then uh, Michael just kind of ran 
whole hog into the Wagnerian thing. I mean, it was just the the Eve was weak number. Um, I mean, it sounded like Goethe Demerung or something. It was huge. We asked whether he thought it could have been Terry's reaction to the criticisms that the show felt like two completely different products welded together. It had nothing to do with that. What, what, what it was was that Terry was looking for something to pin the blame on. And he said, he said, I mean, the day after we opened in Stratford uh, to the worst reviews in the history of the British theater, um, the one that I remember was the Daily Telegraph, which is a fairly conservative publication, had the line, as I recall in the review, I think it said, um, after seeing Carrie, one begins to wonder what the S in RSC actually stands for. Terry's reaction at the sort of the company meeting afterwards was, you know, oh, don't anyone worry about this. As soon as we get the orchestration sorted out, it will be fine. And, and so that was what he pinned it on. How did the new orchestrations change the sound of the show? There was, there was a little bit more of a modernistic glint to Anders's stuff that Harold, Harold was, a, you know, was a Broadway big band jazz guy. Um, so the sort of what was kind of hip and contemporary and a little bit electronic in what Anders did. Uh, because I mean, for example, the the um, I remember when I first heard when we first ran the orchestration for the Do Me a Favor number, it was really I mean, my, it was like hair on your arms standing up on end. The orchestration it was that good, and Harold basically saw what that was and just kind of rearranged it a little bit. I mean, and he did beautiful work. I mean, I loved Harold. The opening of Do Me A Favour does actually sound very different between the Stratford and Broadway bootlegs. In Stratford, the music uses a menacing, futuristic soundscape to open the song. While on Broadway, this almost minute-long opening of the song was adapted to be played by much more traditional instruments, echoing the synthy sound of the rest of the songs in the show. There were other musical changes between Stratford and Broadway, the size of the band, for one. And we had a much bigger orchestra in Stratford than we did in New York. I think we had 36 in Stratford and 25 in New York, which is very normal. I mean, 25 is a big orchestra for, um, for, for, for New York. Um, I think Phantom is 25 now. When Phantom opened, it was 28, and that was the biggest orchestra on Broadway at that time. Um, I'm pretty sure we had 25 on Broadway. We just had more strings and probably like, you know, an extra French horn at Stratford. Um, other than that, you know, it was pretty much the same. Barbara Cook's departure from Carrie after the Stratford run, with Betty Buckley stepping into the role of Margaret White on Broadway, also changed the pace and energy of the production. It changed the atmosphere because she's a completely different kind of an actor from from Barbara. Barbara was was wildly miscast. I mean, it was, you, you, you couldn't have tried harder to find the wrong person to play that part. I just think, you know, I just think that um, Terry loved her voice, which is a, which was a great, fabulous, she was a wonderful singer and a wonderful musical theater performer, but she didn't have the steely edge that, that this part requires. And, and Betty absolutely did. Betty, I mean, Betty was fabulous in the part. 
For Michael, he had a sense very early on in the rehearsal process that things weren't going to end well for Carrie. You you would tend you drop by cast rehearsals a bunch, and you 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 did a lot more often back in those days, before it was so easy to make a video on a phone, and send it to the orchestrator. You had to go in to see numbers, and it just I had a sense like this isn't coming together right. This just does the way it's staging just doesn't seem like it's coming together. You that I just had an early feeling. And then seeing the physical production in Stratford was like, oh my God, it was jaw-dropping. Michael had some other great stories which nobody had mentioned to us and really illustrate some of the chaos of those early days of the show. Remember that massive shiny disco ball that was cut from the prom scene? There's more. I mean, there was this one point where there was... um, a uh, the the scene for the for the, the the high school dance, and they had done these planets, but that were big, huge plastic globes that were supposed to be like planets, but they were melted and misshapen. And Wally Harper was sitting in the back with Barbara and my wife, and said, "Boy, those look like Shelley Winters' uterus." And the enormous descending staircase in the final moments of the show, too big. It was made too big. They made a mistake in the design during tech. And when they tried to bring it down, the whole thing was six inches too long on either side. And they stopped tech for a day. And uh, and there were like 10 stagehands with handsaws sawing off the edges of the roof to, you know, to, to get it to fit. Now, Michael's worked on a lot of musicals in his career. What does he think was at the root of Carrie's downfall? There's two rules I find for new musicals. If the director has never done a musical before, he has to surround himself with everyone of great experience at musicals because it's a completely different beast than a a regular show. I've seen many, many shows fall apart for that exact reason. And the second one is if a show is never meant to be a musical because its subject is not right for musicalization, nothing in the world will fix it. And both of those rules were broken in Carrie. I mean, so when you ask me what they could do, the basic problem was it was a, a horror story. Horror is about realism. The stage is not about realism. It, horror is a film genre. And so you had to replace Horror was something else. And I don't think they quite did that. Um, So it became this sort of high school musical like fame, but it didn't have the heartwarming, striving things that the typical high school growing up and having sex musical has. So I don't think anything could have saved the show. Next, let's talk about pigs, baby. Oh, my favourite subject. <laughs> <laughs> Shit! Look at all these pigs! 
So we spoke to the lovely Jeremy Sturt way back in the series. You'll remember Jeremy was the deputy stage manager for the show both in Stratford and on Broadway and found himself entrenched in all the madness and mayhem. And notably, he was involved in Barbara Cook's epic hardware incident. Ah, yes, presenting an axe and a sledgehammer to director (laughs) Terry Hands in a subtle hint that the musical script might need some work. Well, our section on the Act 2 opener, Crackerjack, or Out for Blood as it came to be known, with its mysterious fiery pig pit in the stage, prompted another hilarious memory from Jeremy. So, uh, listening to the story about Out for Blood, it just reminded me that when the show was in Stratford and we had the, the number was the opening number of set, to, sorry, of Act 2 was Crackerjack. And uh, for Crackerjack, um, we had the pit open. And the reason we had the pit open uh, was the fact that we had, for the bit middle of the number, an animatronic bucking pig. Yes, a real animatronic bucking pig was in the pit, which used to come up in the middle of the choruses and squeal a bit and then go back down again. And for the actual finale of the number, um, um, <laughs> jumping into the gene, jumping into the pit and actually... Uh, knife in the pit in the back and loads of blood coming out now this was cut from the show pretty early on uh, at Stratford because we had numerous complaints from the audience about the blood about the squealing pig and about people either fainting or upsetting their kids when I got to um, Broadway I went and had a coffee uh, with Michael Starobin one of the original orchestrators on the show brilliant bloke uh, since won three, uh, three Tony Awards. Brace yourself. And I walked into his office, and there in the room was the pig. And he had actually taken it from the show, um, asked for it to be wrapped up, um, put on a ship, taken all the way to Broadway, and he has it in his office. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have questions. One, who takes their kids to see Carrie the Musical? That's my first question. Second question, I think, why did we not know about this blood-spurting animatronic pig before now? <laughs> Lastly, how do we meet this pig? Does it still exist? We need a 10-part original podcast series just focusing on that pig's adventures. I sat through Betty Blue Eyes. <laughs> I'm I'm owed this. (sighs) Well, (laughs) we asked Michael to confirm if this little pig story is true. They would take, they had this pig that was about six feet long, latex pig with floppy ears and a stagehand would take it and lift it up like, you know, and there'd be sort of oinking sounds playing from the sound guy and the guy would punch the pig and the pig would come up. He'd punch it again. He'd punch it a few more times. Then he'd reach down and pull up a bucket. I believe that was the staging. How did the blood get in the bucket? What happened? I don't know. But so what happened was the the pig got cut from the show. Um, He played Stratford. They brought him to New York, but they decided they didn't want the pig in New York. I heard that they're going to throw out the pig. And I said, I want the pig. Seriously, I can't deal with this anymore. We have to stop this madness. I want the pig. Don't throw it out. If you're going to throw it out, I think because they would have had to ship it back to Stratford. There was no money left to ship anything back to Stratford. 
I don't know if the pig had appeared in other productions, you know, of Shakespeare or, or Jacobian murder plays or anything. So I said, so they brought the pig outside and I got Anders. Now, Anders and I each had an, another show opening on Broadway at the same time. I had a little show called Romance, Romance. And Anders had a not so little show opening at the same time called Chess. So we we were pretty busy, but we said we want the pig. So we we both went outside the door and it may have been Jeremy or somebody else who brought us the pig. And so we're standing there on, I think it's 51st or whatever the the theater is. And it's and we got to get it somewhere. And so we hail a taxi standing with a six foot pig under our arms. And Anders helped me, helps me get it in. And we, I take the pig up to where I was living at the time on West 93rd Street in Manhattan. And I've kept the pig ever since. And we used to put it outside on Halloween and dress it up. He's in rough shape. One of his ears has come off from taking him outside. And, you know. Does the pig have a name? <laughs> no, we've never named it. It's just the, the carry pig. <laughs> we could name it. Could name it, I guess. Dear listeners, I'm proud to announce that we have a photo of the pig. We will post it on our socials and pass any excellent name suggestions back to Michael. What an adventure. I can't take this anymore. What's next on this roller coaster? Okay. So one of our American listeners got in touch because he was genuinely intrigued by something from way back in episode two. The gorgeous Shelley Hodgson, uh. one of the ensemble members from the original cast, was telling us about some of the wild nights the cast had in the early days of rehearsals in Stratford-upon-Avon. Because we all just found just a common thread. And when we went to Stratford, I remember just going out to that dodgy disco below the hotel. Do you guys remember that, Michelle and Eric? We went down to this, there was this dodgy disco below the hotel. And we just go in and throw shapes. I mean, it was Gene Anthony Wright, it was Leroy from Fame. I mean, hello, people. They were just sat there with their warm pints looking at us. We're throwing these shapes. I love this story. So, <laughs> throwing shapes. <laughs> now, apparently this might be quite a uniquely British expression. You've heard this before. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like dancing while yeah. just going for it on the dance floor. Like this. Yeah, I'm not sure that works in, in audio <laughs> format. But we got back in touch with Shelley anyway, and we asked her to elaborate. One of my favourite fun memories of Carrie was in the early days in Stratford and we would have these impromptu dance sessions where we'd be throwing shapes and creating these um, mad dance routines. It's, 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 it's difficult to visualise in an, in an audio recording, but it, I liken it to when musicians have a jam session. Uh, they're just playing their instruments and they establish a beat and a rhythm and they all just play along and build on that rhythm and it's it's something you just feel um and when we first got to Stratford we were all put in the same hotel and there was a bar with a dance floor and after rehearsals we we had this time it's the first time since rehearsals had started we actually had the time to socialise with each other and hang out with each other and chill out with each other, get to know each other. 
and we were in Stratford upon Avon. There, 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 there wasn't a lot of um, choice, so we head to this bar, and you know the music would come on, and some of us would get on the dance floor and start dancing, freestyle dancing, um, and it was definitely Gene Anthony Ray that instigated it, and he would suddenly shout out five, six, seven, eight, freeze, or pose, or strut, or click your fingers. And um, it kind of gave shape to this kind of routine. Um, So we'd be dancing away, we'd wait for this five, six, seven, eight, and react to whatever it was he had instructed. Um, I have to say that it wasn't always, you know, we started off small, and then we got a bit bigger and got a little bit more adventurous. But it was, it was, how we started to then work in sync with each other and intuitively, you know, work together, completely ad-libbing, all improvising. We didn't know what he was going to say or when he was going to say it, um, which kind of gave it that kind of sort of dangerous feel. We, You know, he didn't want to be the one that, that got it wrong, but invariably we just felt it. We just picked up this beat. We kind of waited for this instruction and these routines just kind of established themselves and we got other members of the cast to come down and join in we even got Debbie Allen to come down and join in a couple of times and she would shout out some of the instructions um I can remember it blew my mind slightly because I had never done anything like this before or have I done anything like it since it was unique to that period of time and probably the energy and the vibe of all of us at that uh, period of time. But it was, it was just amazing how these routines and this, this mad kind of dance sessions just established themselves in this funny little bar in um, the Moat House Hotel in Stratford. Um, just a, so much fun. We had such a laugh um, yeah, a really fun memory of our time in Stratford. Amazing. That story <laughs> just really brings to life this group of people thrown into this roller coaster of an experience. Hey, Holly, do you know what Shelley calls her? I just call her stupid bitch. That's enough, Chris! <laughs> we'll be back after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, over the last few weeks, we've had an outpouring of tweets and posts from Carrie fans, and they've told us all sorts of amazing stories about how Carrie has played a big part in their lives. To start with, we had a great chat with Mike Borowski, who now splits his time between being a Broadway press agent and a DJ. Same. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I have been a super fan of Carrie since right after the opening. I, I just missed it. I wasn't old enough to be in the city seeing shows. But once I started going during um, freshman year of college, I traveled to the city and I became instantly involved with a group of friends who were obsessed with bootlegs and trading videos. And of course, Carrie was the holy grail. And I just kind of, the first time I heard it, it just, it just opened doors I did not imagine were possible. Mike painted a really vivid picture of the passion shared by the early network of Carrie bootleg traders. It's like there were certain people that were almost like totems around the city. So like there was a record store called Footlight Records, which was kind of like your dress circle. And they had every cast album, like current CDs, but also past vinyl. And one of the clerks there, he was this guy you would secretly go to and talk to. And he would he would trade, he would swap. You know, if you were taping things, he'd want to like get something new he couldn't get to, that he'd trade something that he had from the past. There was the doorman at the um, at the Martin Beck Theater. He was another guy that was into trading. So you got to know who the people were, and it became this really interesting underground community. When Mike saw the title of our seventh episode, Are You a Friend of Carrie?, he gasped. As a reminder, soon after Carrie abruptly closed on Broadway, small, mysterious adverts started to appear in the back of Theatre Week magazine with the bold headline, Are You a Friend of Carrie?, with a postal address printed underneath. We've adapted it as the catch-all term for fans of the show. And our theory was that it was a Carrie bootleg trading fan club. Turns out we were wrong. So I know who placed the ad for the Are You a Friend of Carrie? It was a, an employee at Theatre Week magazine, which at the time was the source of information about Broadway shows and upcoming Broadway shows and all kinds of rumors about casting and what shows were opening, who was leaving, what was bombing out of town. If you were a Carrie fan, you knew this magazine. He, he was a fellow employee at Theatre Week. I was the summer intern there for the summer of 91. And he was also obsessed with Carrie. So, you know, we'd get together, we'd play different versions. Oh, do you have the second preview? No, I've got the fifth performance. So that kind of stuff. Mike and his Carrie-obsessed colleague were disappointed by the lack of merchandise and memorabilia from the show. Now, a particular trend on Broadway at the time was show jackets, given out to the cast and crew when a new musical opened. They were branded with Broadway logos and were extremely desirable for fans. At the time... Show jackets were, I mean, they were the coolest thing in New York City. I mean, if you're walking down the street and you saw like a dancer walking by in her chorus line jacket or, you know, some amazing looking singer in his family opera denim. Um, I mean, it was, it was like seeing it was like seeing a Hollywood star. Like if you're a Broadway fan, you're like, oh, my God, that person is so cool. They're in the you know, they're in the chorus of cats. Mike and his Theatre Week friend thought that a Carrie show jacket would be extremely cool to have. But sadly, there were none around. So they took matters into their own hands. And so he contacted the, you know, the company that that did most of the cast jackets. He wanted to look real. We have like some like, you know, shaggy thing. It was like he wants to look tip top gorgeous because they're so expensive. And we knew some people, but we thought there must be more people even crazier than us that might pay a lot of money just to help the cost go down. And so we thought, okay, place this ad in the place where every carry eye is going to see it. People might 
you know, respond and then we can fill them in on what it was. Such dedication. They thought that keeping the advert mysteriously vague would also filter out any prying legal eyes likely to shut down their project. And of course, there was a nod in the headline to the famous friend of Dorothy euphemism. I may shock you here, Holly. The Carrie legacy had largely been kept alive by gay men, you see. Gasp! <laughs> no, I know. Take a sip of water. Calm down. No, this isn't water. Oh, okay. How, how much were these jackets and can I still order one? <laughs> well, dear listeners, please don't write to the address on the ad because we imagine the current occupier has no interest in supplying you with Carry the Musical branded apparel. The jackets weren't cheap. Mike reckons they were about $250 each. That's a lot for an intern. But worth it. I'll show you right now. I know you saw it, but here it is. She really is here. He's kept it all these years. It's glorious. We shall post the photo on social. And I know that it looks like I tried to get this part straight, but because it billows, it's really hard to see that actually because it looks like in the pictures, like it's kind of janky. It's not. It is. It is gorgeous. Their stylish jackets cause quite a stir on the streets of New York City. Oh hell yeah! Because you know, to some, you know, this this theater nerd, to me, it was like. Status. And you knew, like, no one had them, not even the people in the show. So, you know, you'd walk down the street and somebody like, oh, my. Wait, can, can I swear? Can I swear? <laughs> oh, my fucking God. Is that someone from Carrie? So we get stopped all the time. <laughs> and um, so it was just it was just it was just kind of fun and fucking around and just being, you know, when you're young and you think you're kind of superior, I don't know. I mean, it, it's so ridiculous even to me now to think like we actually did that. I mean, how insane. But it was, it was fun. It was fun. I love the fact that somewhere out there, there are more friends of Carrie with these heavily branded Carrie leather jackets tucked away in the loft. <laughs> Mike also has another Carrie connection. As a student journalist and Carrie obsessive, he wrote to Terry Hans asking for an interview during a trip to the UK. I got like an immediate yes. And uh, which shocked me. I was really surprised. I kind of just wanted to let him talk first and just see what he'd reveal as opposed to my kind of asking questions that I thought might lead the conversation. And it's before I ever heard this, this, I still call it a rumor, this grease, grease thing. He specifically brought up, he said, he said, you know, what, what people don't understand is that Carrie is the ultimate tragedy and the Greek tragedies were the ultimate tragedies. So I wanted to specifically be able to call out, you know, the Greek tragedies. And if that was, that was what he claimed was the way he was doing it. I think we'll never have a final explanation on Greece versus Greece. It's interesting that Terry was willing to talk so openly about what must have been quite a humiliating experience. I was talking with such kind of seriousness and gravitas that he really... He just, he, he, I think he enjoyed talking about it because he had so much shit for it. And people were just like, had been so cruel and the reviews were terrible and had been forgotten. Terry actually gave Mike a Carrie baseball cap, which all the cast and crew had been given as an opening night gift. He must have been in Carrie heaven. Mm. Terry also signed Mike's copy of Stephen King's novel with the musical branded cover, which sparked a personal mission for this most dedicated of fans. And so I would try to get every person involved with Carrie to sign it. You know, I'd go to Jim Robbins Broadway, I'd have Charlotte sign it, I'd have Scott Wise sign it, I'd have Marianne Lamb sign it. And so he signed, he signed my book and he, he wrote something very generous. And it was just, it's, it's, I mean, I went to, to go see Betty Buckley in the, you know, pre-Broadway trial of Stardust. And I asked her, I said, will you sign this? The sin ever dies. And she said, no, love Betty Buckley. <laughs> One last anecdote from Mike. Remember early in the series, we heard from the cast that many of the costumes from the Broadway show were actually shredded after the last performance because of union rules? 
Well, it seems like some of them <laughs> slipped under the radar. One year, Mike and his college friends were browsing the Broadway flea market, an annual sale at which shows sell off old merchandise, playbills, costumes and props for charity. And looking through, I'm like, what are these? Like, some of them were just so crazy. I'm like, what the hell is this? And the woman running the booth is like, oh, those are the tights from Carrie, from, you know, from the, the kids' high school number. And I'm like, I'm looking and it's like pink bodysuit tights. Rhinestones hand sewn into like you know little crazy patterns. And I'm like, okay, I have to have one of these stupid things, obviously. And so um, and so I bought I bought one. I bought one of their girls <laughs> body tights. And you're gonna ask did I wear it? I could not fit into it. It was too tiny. I mean <laughs> he found a unitard. They exist in the wild. <laughs> he has it in storage, and there may be others. Come through to us, Unitard collectors. Get in touch. Actually, I have further evidence of costumes escaping the shredders. Tell me now. Our lovely listener, Sunil Ayagari, got in touch on Instagram with this story. I discovered Carrie when I was in high school. I was um, a big fan of Lindsay Hately's Joseph CD, and I had to hear everything she'd ever done. I thought her voice was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. So I kind of got into this online world of Betty Buckley fandom through AOL, where I was able to get my hands on a lot of carry material. And within a year of that, uh, right when I was 17, Broadway Cares announced that for their big auction in September, the big lot was gonna be Betty Buckley's sweater that she was donating. And I just knew I had to have it. So I went down to the bank and I took out all of my like Christmas money and savings for years. And I went to the auction. I put my hand up when that lot came up and one person was bidding against me. And they just kept their hand up too, but I like, knew I had to have this. And it kept going up and going up and going up and a little beyond my budget. And I knew I had to stop, but I also knew I had to have it. So I held out, I ended up winning. And uh, the lot was Betty Buckley's sweater, a letter from her verifying that it was from her collection and that it was from the show, um, a front of theater kind of houseboard with the logo that's like huge and I love it. And a photo of Lindsay and, Be- and Betty doing Eva's Week uh, in black and white. And I have no regrets, it was for a good cause. I'm so glad that I have this uh, really unique piece of history. And I've never put it on and performed Eva's Week when I was alone in my room, but that's mostly just because I didn't want to stretch out this really important piece. Oh my God. <laughs> Incredible. I don't think I could resist wearing that most nights and giving my Margaret wife. A sight to behold, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks, Mike and Sunil, too. Between Lindsay's shoes, Mike's unitard, and Sunil's sweater, we're edging ever closer to recreating the original production. <laughs> or at least a fairly small niche museum. Who else have we found? I feel like we should have some sort of carry postbag jingle. Tom, can we have that, please? I guess we'll find out when he edits this. <laughs> So the first time round, we really struggled to find anyone who had seen the show in its first incarnation in Stratford. We did hear from the lovely actor Paul Clayton, who sent us this incredible memory of seeing the show. So sit back, grab a glass of wine and listen to his dulcet tones take you back to Stratford-upon-Avon, February 1988. Um, I'd just been doing a film with a lovely actor called Warren Sayer. And so we went one Saturday afternoon, thrilled to get some matinee tickets and drove up from London, centre stalls, big high-tech steel mirrored set, very Terry Hands and Ralph Coltai. 
and suddenly the band thrashed into action and we thought this is it this is going to be high drama and grand guisional horror throughout the afternoon and um, i think the first warning sign came with the first lyric uh, which were lots of girls in white rah-rah skirts dancing around a gymnasium and singing it's saturday night and i'm worried about my split ends but we overlooked that uh, we overlooked the fact when the glass shower block in the gymnasium spun round and Carrie's shower cubicle, occupied by the very talented, but on this case unfortunate, Lindsay Haightley, glowed red from inside, and all the other girls threw open their shower doors, <coughs> coyly wrapped in white towels, to sing, She's Having a Period. Um... By the time we got to the interval, we'd really realised that this wasn't going to be on the top ten of musical hits of the 20th century. And we stood on the balcony a little uncertain as to what to say to each other, and we shared a cigarette. We made our way back in to sit in our stall seats, and as we sat down, the people behind us sat down and really summed up our whole afternoon a lovely Yorkshire voice, and I'm a Yorkshireman, so I appreciate it, was suddenly heard to say, Hey, I don't know, two and a half hours on the coach, and then this. That comment's always stuck in my mind. In fact, the good thing was, I was able to write into the Evening Standard, who had a column called Over and that lovely person's comment won me a magnum of champagne. Incredible scenes, thanks to that lady from Yorkshire. Next up, we heard from Michael Berg, who in 1988 was the manager of the Dress Circle Shop in Covent Garden in London, a place where you could go and buy all your musical theatre cast albums and memorabilia. Being at the epicentre of West End musical gossip, he knew he had to head to Stratford for opening night. Um, we went up to Stratford. We were, I mean, gobsmacked probably the best opening night I've ever attended for many reasons. Um, I actually fell in love with the show and I've always remained a fan. My lasting memory, though, apart from the show, was the following morning in our hotel, which I think was a Hilton. We went down for breakfast and sat at a table right next to Debbie Allen and friends, I guess, I don't know. And they had a pile of newspapers and watching their faces, reading those reviews, which was obviously what they were doing, um, as we were doing as well, was priceless a great memory to have now that must have been an awkward breakfast we recently heard from keith butler who was a regular audience member at the rsc he was very kind i did want to thank both of you because you're absolute legends for doing this i mean i mean uh, you know seriously i mean it's like uh, you know i mean it, it, the whole issue of carry has been a sort of gap in my life so for, I think it's I think it's been a gap in most people's lives or a lot of people's lives, you know. And uh, and it's uh, it, you are filling in the missing pieces for for me, honestly. I mean, I'm not I'm, I'm genuine there. You are filling in a lot of missing. I'm thinking this is this is what I wanted to know thirty years ago. Keith, it's too much. Keith. He saw the show not once but twice. Over the years, he had become a fan of Terry Han's innovative productions of Shakespeare and was keen to see what he'd make of a big new musical. Like many theatre lovers in the local area, Keith dismissed the snooty reaction of the press and contributed to the show's sellout run in Stratford. The critics sort of 
thought it was the RSC dumbing down, I guess. Uh, and, that, and they sort of went into it with the, you know, wanting to dislike it. And it was the public that said, up yours. And, and you know, there we go. And it come on. So it was, I was familiar with Stephen King's book, but of course it was, you know, I was seeing everything. And so when they, they did carry, um, you know, it was a no brainer. I was going to see, I was going to see that. It was Terry Hans. It was going to be a big musical. Um, my, my, my first wife, who I was married to at that time, was well into Kids from Fame, and I hated it. It wasn't really, it wasn't really my thing at all, you know. But actually, she took me to the bloody concert to her as well, you know. Uh, and I, have to, I know, as some of my mates don't ever forget that I actually went to see Kids from Fame in one of these arenas, you know. But uh, it was all right, you know, but I was never really uh, into it. But this whole idea of, um, you know, the, the sort of this conglomeration between sort of Debbie Allen and Terry Hans was, was sort of fascinating from the start. I think it's really interesting, actually, to get a Brit's perspective on this kind of mega musical Mm. opening up in this relatively small town here in England. This was really a big deal at the time. We kind of forget how massive fame Mm. was. So to have this combination of the RSC, fame, Stephen King, it all sounds a bit weird to us now looking back. Mm. But I think people were really excited and curious to see what this was going to be like. Yeah. As a fan of Terry Han's work, we asked his thoughts on the suggestion that Terry had simply lost control of the look and feel of the show. I listened to some of your podcasts and listened to some of the interviews about, about Terry. And given what I saw from his Shakespearean productions, it's hard to believe that he, he just, you know, let, it, let the rest of it go. Or, or, or sort of, you know, or couldn't be bothered to stand up to Debbie Allen or, you know, all that. To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense because he was he was the artistic director of the RSC at that time. He was the big man at that time. And it's difficult to believe that he would have, um, you know, put the production at risk in those terms, um, even if he thought it was going to be a, a flop or whatever. He, I, you know, I don't think he would have done that. Keith's view is that the show simply came too soon. A lot of it was a, ahead of its time. And I, and I just think that um, the production itself was a bit ahead of its time, I think. You know, it, you know, it would have been very simple to just do it as a straightforward uh, adaptation of the book with a gymnasium or dressed in high school clothes and the rest of it and uh, without any sort of deep issues around abuse or bullying or whatever, you know, Terry wanted to get across. Very interesting. Another fan, Bob Sembiante, saw the show on Broadway and we loved hearing his memories. Ah, uh, Carrie. Never been a musical liker. Uh, as a young director and stage manager, I remember learning, you can always learn something from any show that you see, good or bad. And man, did I learn a lot from Carrie. Uh, right from the beginning, I, I just knew something was terribly wrong. These gorgeously sung and acted classic scenes between mother and daughter just interspersed with this teen pop schlock stuff that just, they never gelled. The two shows never met. Of course, the audience reaction on Broadway has gone down in history. The mixed reactions of the crowd at the end, people couldn't figure it out. I haven't seen anything like that. There was a moment in in Passion by Stephen Sondheim early on in previews where Donna Murphy's Fosca um, was chasing Giorgio, following him everywhere, and he gets on a train, and at the last minute she slips through the doors and comes on the same train where he is, and they hadn't set it up right, and the audience just burst out laughing. And I just cringe, thinking, oh, 
oh, that is not what they want. That is not what the what the what the writers want. And there were so many moments of that in Carrie. I love this extra story that Bob shared with us too. My my favorite part was that I almost didn't see it. I was seeing a man at the time, and we were seeing every musical together that season. We had tickets to see it in what would have been the week after it closed. But the week before it closed, I was in town and said, I'm going to go see a matinee. And he said, whatever you do, don't see Carrie without me. I'll be pissed. So, of course, I went and saw Carrie, and um, I would have missed it completely. And... uh I went on a date with a, a guy who was in the original company a little bit later, a few years later, and there wasn't a second date because I think he was a little thrown back by, can we just keep talking about Carrie now? What, ha- what happened here and how did this happen? And, and, and can I have your copy of the score? So that was not a dating win, but um, so much drama in so many different ways and that show stays with me forever and i'm so grateful for the alfred blood podcast finally telling the whole story thank you thanks bob it's been a pleasure who else have we heard from well con o'neill tweeted at us con o actual neil genuine legend of stage and screen the voice the rugged good looks he told us that he went to an open audition for carrie and never got in. <laughs> he's done all right from not being yeah, in Carrie, hasn't he? <laughs> fine. I guess he's probably not too bothered. Dashing West End leading man and brand new Carrie fan David Hunter sent us this message. Hello, hello. David Hunter here. Carrie newbie and Out for Blood super fan. Uh, I love this podcast. I can't remember why I, how I discovered it. I must have just seen a tweet, but I'm, I'm glad I did. I've poured over every second twice. And since discovered all the Carrie stuff online because I'd never seen a single clip of the show. Uh, and so I've gone down a rabbit hole and I've gone deep, my friends. And it's all thanks to you. <laughs> but I've loved it. It's been incredible discovering this mad show. And and you know what? Serves as a brilliant reminder as well of... Because um, obviously I'm missing kind of being a part of a cast and stuff during this lockdown. And it's reminded me that, you know, whatever you do with a show, whether it's really well received or not well received or if it's a mega flop as Carrie was, that the joy in it all is is working with those people and, and making something together. To so listen to those casts talking from the, the 80s production and the, the, the relationship between them and the stories they've got to tell and the joy in their voice talking about making this thing, which ended up being a flop. But the fact of the matter is, I think you throw on these shows, you put something on, it's well-received, it's not well-received, it wins awards, it doesn't, it's a mega flop, whatever it is. And a group of people, however big or small, take it away with them who've loved it and hold it in their hearts and it becomes a part of their lives. And the cast and the crew and everyone who works on it, the writers, the creative team, you can tell, listen to them, they're so passionate about it. And I know that feeling. And I think it reminded me that actually the joy in making theatre and the, is, is the getting to put it on, is the, you know, the, is the, is the licence to make it and enjoy it and build up those stories and meet these people and, and share this experience. And then you just put it out in the world and see what it becomes. And really, there's no disaster in Carrie being a flop because look at the joy it's brought us. Look at the joy it's brought me 40 years on-ish uh, as a man who's never seen it before and it's just been thrust into my life and I've just loved it. So this is, this is my sincere love letter to um, Out for Blood podcast and to Carrie the Musical. Um, thanks for reminding me what a joy it is to do, even when it goes horribly, horribly wrong. Oh, David, thank you. He's right. Carrie does seem to be bringing joy wherever it goes. 
Whoever thought a show that closed after a couple of weeks in 1988 could still be doing that? Thank you for your lovely words. Oh, the very talented theatre designer Christopher Oram also said he had become obsessed with the show. Really? Can we expect a, can we expect a slew of set designs with Carrie references <laughs> in the near future? I've heard that all new musicals will legally be obliged to end with a huge descending staircase. <laughs> Oh, and we got this lovely message from the director and choreographer Lee Proud. I was about, when I was about 11 or 12, my brother bought the book of Carrie and my mum tried to bribe me to not read it because I, I kept stealing it from my brother and I wanted to read it all the time. And then I saw, and I just loved it. My mum tried to bribe me, but I sneaked it into my room and I read it and I loved it. And then, um, then I saw the film when I was about 13 or 14 on a VHS uh, copy and I just could not believe what I saw. I just loved it. I, so I, I'm a massive fan of the film. Huge fan of the book. Um, cut to uh, 1988, 87, 88, and I'm, I'm, I was at Italia Conti and I was actually at school with Lindsay Hately when she was plucked from her training to go and, uh, and play the role of Carrie. At the same time, I was uh, cast in Starlight Express in the West End. So um, we were both kind of the success stories of our school at the time a little bit, the, the two of us. And Lindsay and I were very good friends and still are. And uh, I remember Carrie, uh, Carrie happening, Lindsay going off to do that. Everyone was talking about it. And, um, and I was in Starlight Express. And then I went to Japan to do Starlight Express. And Lindsay and I would talk on the phone. I was in Tokyo and Lindsay was in New York. And she was telling me how, how much fun she was having, how brilliant it all was. And uh, we were both having a great time, the time of our lives. And then Lindsay got me, uh, sent me a cassette copy of the um, of the show. I think it was done on the sound desk, and I became obsessed with that soundtrack. I just absolutely loved it. Um, the, uh, the 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 soundtrack was constantly in my walk, my Sony Walkman, which I had at the time, and I was terrified of flying. So I used to play Carrie when on takeoff and landing, the the big bit at the end of the title number, uh, when she sings um, "Carrie, I'm in the sound of distant thunder." Da, 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 da. It's really great to listen to on takeoff and landing on an aeroplane. So um, I used to listen to it all the time on that um, and then obviously I saw the Southwark Playhouse version a few, few years later but I really really wanted to see the original and and I still love it to this day and I've just really enjoyed this podcast so thank you so much How lovely and a great tip for your next turbulent flight So if you had to pick one which was your very favourite interview from all of the almost 70 people we spoke to I mean, there are so many to choose from. It, it takes a lot to beat the brilliant Lindsay Hately and that amazing evening we spent with some of the British cast oh, last year. It feels like so long ago. We heard from Lindsay recently, actually, after we talked about that famous shot of her on the front of the Not Since Carrie book, covered in blood and laughing at the same time. Yeah. Uh, she told us that the shoot took place at the theatre. They had planned to use a photo of her in the blood-soaked prom dress on the front of house posters, but went down a different route. Somebody said something to make her laugh, and it was that shot that ended up immortalised forever on Ken Mandelbaum's book cover. Amazing. She also shared some wonderful photos from her personal carry collection, which we posted on our social channels, including her original script with her name written on it in like 17-year-old oh. highlighter <laughs> pen, and even the shoes she wore on stage as Carrie. Those shoes should be in a glass case next to Dorothy's in the Smithsonian. <laughs> the British cast also told us that our mini reunion sparked a larger one with more cast members from around the world reuniting on Zoom. Some of them hadn't seen each other since the closing night back in May 1988. How amazing is that? 
It makes me feel all warm inside. <laughs> um, Dean Pitchford was also great mm. to interview, just so kind and generous with his time. And he talked us all the way through the history of the show from beginning to end. I don't think we could have really started this without his help. No, definitely. I've never Zoomed with an Oscar winner before. Oh, have you not? Me and Meryl are on all the time. We do quizzes, <laughs> chats. She loves those backgrounds you can have. She'd she come on as a potato. Yeah, she turned into a kitten last week. <laughs> I loved speaking to Joe Iconis. That was a lot of fun. Oh, uh, that was great. If you remember, Joe, the creator of Be More Chill, was a teenage Carrie fan. Now, he was in deep. Mm. <laughs> he told us this kind of escalating tale of searching for and acquiring a Carrie bootleg tape, only to be called by Betty Buckley's actual lawyer after posting his details online. And now, of course, he works with Betty and he's her friend. <laughs> There's still part of me that's like, I don't want Ms. Buckley to be angry at me <laughs> for trading this videotape, even though now she'd be so cool with it. Like she's super down with bootlegs these days. But um, yeah, it was so terrifying. So we have this unused footage. Um, so let's just listen to Joe talk a bit more about Carrie and how it changed his life, shall we? Yeah. You know, my, my heart is definitely with original, trashy, pulpy, Carrie. That is where my heart lies. I think Carrie has inspired my own work uh, in the way that, you know, I was sort of talking about before in that it's the, so much of that, so much of the show is so heartfelt and so passionate and so unafraid to wear its, you know, big bloody heart on its sleeve. And it's so unafraid to just say what it means and and it's 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 not trying to be cool it's not trying to show you how smart it is uh and it's it's just kind of there you know and and i i I love that i love that that transparency and i love that when the show needs to take on a tone that is that is super serious and 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 you know grave it can and when the show needs to take on the you know the lightness and the cheesiness of being a, a teenager uh in a way that feels really you know fun and 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 flip and all that it, it can do that too uh and those sort of like those sort of um uh extremes living in the same piece of art is something that i think just got baked into me from a very very young age and the other thing that that got sort of baked into me was this idea of using genre in musical theater and and having the bravery to you know tell a story that has these fantastical elements and has situations that are are kind of you know ridiculous or, or or you know situations that are are not what you would consider normal musical theater fodder, um, but still, you know, tell a story that feels human and authentic and and uh, truthful. And you know, and there's also this is such a huge thing, but I I am so inspired by pieces of art that are regarded as um, or pieces of art and art forms that are often regarded as like trashy. You know, like the like things that you know things that seem cheap or things that people sort of stick their nose up at uh and carrie the the original talking about the you know the original stratford slash broadway version of carrie not the not the the reworking uh that, that show is trashy and and to me in, in a way that's like the in the best way like in a way that you know the films of brian de palma are trashy while still having you know so much in them uh and the em- embracing that that kind of trashiness that pulpiness is something that i do all the time in my work Joe did us a favor. Do me a favor. Thank you. 
Joe read out an incredible letter that was passed to us by one of the cast members in the middle of the series that had been mailed to the Virginia Theatre during previews. It was gasp-inducing. I couldn't believe how angry that person was. You can listen to the whole thing at the start of episode four, but my particular favourite moment was... I have never been more offended by any production I have ever seen, and I apologise for being rude. But you owe me an apology as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my God. <gasps> I mean, if you are the author of that letter, please do get in touch <laughs> and we'll be happy to dedicate an entire bonus hour yeah. to your further thoughts on the matter. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. <laughs> I'm going to use that line every time I'm dissatisfied from now on. In a restaurant, this food was awful. I apologise for being rude, but you owe me an apology as well. <laughs> Is what I, I shall say. I'm going to get Joe to record a standard complaint clip. I could just tweet <laughs> at brands and politicians. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, oh, yeah. I loved talking to Alice Ripley, personal Broadway hero. You know, Next to Normal was the first show I saw on Broadway, and I went twice in two days. <laughs> oh, she is a legend. I realised after talking to her for this that I had obviously stalked the Next to Normal stage door because I got her to sign my Next to Normal playbill. You're making a bit of a habit of this, aren't you? I think it's the only time I've stage doored in my life. (laughs) That's not true. We did it for Liza. Oh my God, we did. (laughs) But she jumped in a car and she didn't want to hang out with us for some reason. (laughs) I can't think why. (laughs) And we did it at the Gary Revival. I think we apologised to Larry Cohen for Britain's contribution to the downfall of his musical. Okay, okay. So this was one of many examples in my life. I've harassed someone. Thank you. I now look like a crazy weirdo. (laughs) Alice is the kind of performer who really gets inside the head of her characters. It's kind of, you kind of have to feel sorry for her, for Margaret, because, uh, you know, everything that I'm doing is Margaret. I'm, I'm screwing everything up. And in the end, I don't have to do any of it. But I think I'm doing it for the good of everybody. Yeah. I heard about the show. I, I knew about what it was about and how it was received. And I had heard some of the music, but it had this, it, ha, it was legendary as being something that nobody could get. They couldn't get, you couldn't hear the music. You, you couldn't find the, it was unfindable. Um, but there was, it was led, it, there were stories about it, you know. We went on a bit of a sidebar about some of her other roles, which we couldn't really squeeze into the episodes. But I think some of our listeners would love to hear uh, first from American Psycho, Mrs. Bateman. I love Mrs. Bateman. She's. I wish I had had more time. You know, she's she's only she's a small. I played a bunch of characters, and then she she's just in a few scenes. But I would love to like explore that character in a, in a series or something. Um, I think that the the common thread is maybe. Contr- manipulation and control. Um, it's funny because uh, that's the thing that I, even with the character I played last fall, Norma Desmond, um, when I describe m- myself and then the characters I play, a character like Norma, one of the only things that we have that's different about us, because we're very, I'm more like her probably than any character I've ever played, Norma Desmond, except she's manipulative and she lies. And I don't do either of those. But I could do it through her. And what about her award-winning portrayal of Next to Normal's Diana? Well, Diana, Diana enjoys, she enjoys too much how everybody is doting on her and trying to, you know, like, um, they're all worried about her. And Diana enjoys that too much. And that, that is part of her down, that's part of what breaks her. But the break is, you know, like the kind of person who subconsciously maybe um, likes the attention, even though they're sick. Um, uh, and the, but the break is caused from 
Diana allowing too much control, like allowing herself to control the other people too much in a negative way. But then the break is, is necessary for Diana because that's where her healing begins. So these characters, you know, uh, Diana is not, Diana does tell lies and she does manipulate, but you know, she's on a completely different, like I don't have anything in common with that woman except that I'm a woman. Everything else about us is different, which I think is really interesting. But that the control, the subconscious control and manipulation runs through all of these characters. And I wonder if it's because I don't really do that. And I don't really, if I ever did it, I don't do it anymore because I'm over 50. I don't have time to, for that baloney, play games and stuff. And I get to do it through these characters. Of course, we encouraged Alice to get over to London where she's never performed. She could stay on my sofa. I'm sure she'd be delighted. <laughs> it's exciting to know that this is something that I still have yet to do. Yeah. I yeah. can't wait. I know someday I'll go there and I'll do, I'll, I'll play a role and, um, I can't, I don't think I'll ever come back, actually. Because <laughs> I have been in England. I just haven't been to London. Yeah. And I love the people oh, there. I love you, them. Oh. You must come and see You must come and see us. Yes, we'd love it's to. It's tempting to want to, I want to steal your, your sound. I want to <laughs> practice. And I should have done the whole interview this way. And they would have thought it was Julie Andrews. <laughs> there we go. So much fun. Uh, another great interview for me was uh, Stafford Arima, the director of The Revisal. He was just so nice and had so uh, much great insight into this show and the story and the characters. Although I did keep screwing up the time zones for him. Sorry, Stafford. <laughs> if I live to be 100, I will never understand time zones. No, no, it's not your fault. I think it's it. I think part of it is just the, trying to figure out the time zones. And if I say nine, does that mean 11 your time or is that nine your time anyway? It's all okay. I just about mastered Eastern and Pacific, but all of a sudden Stafford was in something called Mountain Time. Mountain Time? Mountain what time? even is that? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, apologies, Stafford, and the good citizens of Mountain Time for basically inventing a fictional time for his interview. But we got there in the end. The great thing about Stafford is that he just loves this show and really changed the course of it and the way people think about it. I feel very honored and very blessed to be a part of the um, the journey of Carrie. If I didn't send that email in August of 2008 to my agent about doing a concert, that um, and the fact that my agent kind of said, I don't think that's going to happen, uh, but I didn't stop. I didn't stop pursuing the idea. So... That tenacious drive, I think, is an important ingredient for any young artist. And I also think for, when I think of Michael and Larry and Dean, uh, that they continue to believe in a show that they wrote. They gave birth to a show that uh, was incredibly well-intentioned and uh, through a beautiful force of creative um, nuances and differences. Uh, it became what it became. But as Second Life came in 2012, and perhaps another one will come again, one never knows. But the CD is available, so it lives on. And um, wonderful podcasts like yours give audiences a chance to understand the breadth of Carrie and uh, the complexities of uh, producing, directing, performance, uh, audience reaction, 
in a in a really kind of cohesive way. So thank you. No, thank you. Of course, we heard from tons of people who discovered the Carrie story through Stafford's revival and all of the many productions that have come since. Sean Pollock saw the revival and made an instant decision. Um, and I remember at intermission uh, for the revival, I found Stafford Arima at intermission. This is a true story, by the way. And I said to him, I'm going to direct the first college production of Carrie the Musical, which is just such a ballsy thing to say. But he was like, okay, I mean, good luck. I mean, what do you say to that, right? But it actually happened. Sean directed the first college production of the new edition of Carrie at Ithaca College in New York. Sean has hopes to resurrect the classic original one day. Don't we all? I'm available. I think that the 88 version, although it doesn't quite have that ending, is darker. And is it perfect? No. But you know what? There, it, it's actually it's so bizarre that it, it works and it's iconic. And so I hope if I get a third round to direct Carrie, I I hope that it will be the eighty eight one. I hope that they license it because you know what? People love it and it, it's entertaining and it is really there's no other musical like her, right? That's what they said in the press ads and whatever. Anyway, thanks for having me on. Uh, and don't. Waste the moon. <laughs> Iconic. Thanks, Sean. Anyway, I think that's all of our items on the agenda. Oh, guys, thank you again. We really appreciate all the love. And in this very strange, very unnerving time for all of us who love the world of theatre and live entertainment, it's been a pleasure to meet and speak with so many people who are passionate about it and can't wait to be back on stage or backstage or watching yeah. a stage as soon as safely possible. We will certainly be there as soon as we're allowed to be. If you see us smuggling in those little mini bottles of wine, though, please come and say hello. But don't tell the ushers, please, or no. we'll get you with our laser fingers. <laughs> Of course, if there are any more major carry happenings in the future, I'm sure we'll be back to hassle whoever is involved until they give us an interview. Uh, there's been lots of chat on Twitter, actually, from people demanding an exact reconstruction of the 1988 production to be mounted as soon as possible. Happy to sign that petition. And we've also got some other plans up our sleeves. But I don't, I don't have sleeves in this unitard. Oh, you should get a sexy leather jacket like me. Did you wrestle that from the shredder? I bought it from an ad in the back of this magazine I subscribed to. Anyway, yeah, don't... <laughs> Anyway, don't hit unsubscribe because we hope to bring you some exciting news about Out for Blood pretty soon. That's right. Plus, keep your next Wednesday free because we're dropping just one more teeny tiny bonus episode. Another one. Another one. With lots of lovely comments from Carrie fans all around the world. For now, stay safe and keep on spreading the Carrie word. Dream on. Bye. Bye. Out for Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. For more information about us and the podcast, please visit us online at bpn.fm slash outforblood. If you enjoyed Out for Blood, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download it from, and don't forget to subscribe. And come and join us at Out for Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Out for Blood Pod on Twitter. Out for Blood was hosted and produced by me, Holly Morgan. And me, Chris Adams. Sound engineering and editing by Tom Moores. Paddy Jervis is our audio consultant. Original music by Odin Orn Hillmarsen. And artwork by Rebecca Pitt. Thanks to all our contributors over the last few weeks. But in this special bonus episode, you heard from Lindsay Haightley, Shelley Hodgson, Kenny Linden, Annie Golden, Todd Graff, Paul Schwartz, Jeremy Sturt, Mike Borowski, Keith Butler, Bob Sembiante, David Hunter, Lee Proud, Joe Iconis, Alice Ripley, Stafford Arima, and Sean Pollock. Pass me the Cracker Jacks. I'm exhausted. I'm still laughing about the penguin joke. Penguin. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.